<laughs> All right. Well, I just want to praise the Lord for your hospitality and for your warmth and for your regular attendance and for being here tonight and all of the times that you have come I consider it a privilege and an honor to proclaim Christ and I sometimes will sign my correspondence I'll say simply privileged to proclaim and all of us are privileged to believe privileged to receive his saving grace so we're in this together and we will get to have the privilege of being in eternal glory around the throne, giving uh, praise and honor to his name. With that in mind, let's begin and have our time of prayer and be about the word. And we're on, and we're on, and we're off, and we're on. Pray with me, please. Better pray about the electronics. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the presence of your spirit and for the joy that we have as your people, as this family of God. I thank you for each and every person who has made it a priority to be here tonight. We're here because we have been touched by your grace and we know we need more of your grace flowing freely within our hearts and lives. So enable me to hide behind the cross and let Christ speak forth as only he can and as only he should. Touch our hearts and our lives in ways that will make an eternal impact in the kingdom of God, in the lives of men and women and boys and girls, we pray in his name. Amen. Some serious fun. God's people taking their faith seriously and having a good time doing it. Four times in the book of Acts, we've been surprised to discover that there's a little word tucked in the book of Acts, the word phobos, from which we get, of course, phobia, meaning a serious fear. The context of the book of Acts in each of those four times seems to speak about a sense of awe or connectedness with God and who he is and what he's doing. Another way to say it would be the fear of God. Now, there are times that that fear indeed strikes terror in us, and other times it warms our hearts. So it's an amazing mystery of grace, this business of the fear of God. And we have been, and you will be even tonight, surprised at the various instances of the four, and hence four sermons, that we have seen where this has been mentioned. In our previous messages, Phobos has been thrills and chills. I told you we were going to have some serious fun, and we did with drama-filled and intrigue. At Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a mighty rushing wind. They speak in tongues, and thousands come to Christ after Peter preaches, and they are baptized. And by the way, I had the privilege of being in Jerusalem this year, and when some skeptics have said you could not have baptized that many people that day at Pentecost, when we were there, our expert uh, Dr. Price showed us, he said, here are the baptismal pools, and indeed they have done the calculations. It would have indeed been possible with that many baptismal ceremonial washing pools of the Jewish religion for the Christians to have utilized them and had those people come to Christ that day as they made a profession of faith. Power was pulsating through the early church, and they all kept feeling a sense of awe. Acts 2.43 a sense of wonderment that they were connected with God in their midst. The word is phobos. Last night, we were surprised to discover in Acts chapter 5 that two people in the church, just like you and I on a night just like this, 
When they messed around with God, were pronounced dead. And of course the passage says, and we didn't argue with them, who would, that great phobos, great fear came upon the whole church. But we did not stop there. We went on and looked at the ramifications, the outgrowth, the, the after effects, and they were positive. Good things came out of trauma and turmoil. We wrestled with the concept of turning turmoil, which is inevitable in your life and mine, of turning that turmoil into triumph. And that is possible in Jesus Christ. Tonight, get ready to get, be surprised. Because the word phobos is third, found a third time, not in the midst of drama, not in the midst of high intrigue and, and espionage, the word phobos is going to be found in the scriptures in a situation of the routine, the mundane, the ho-hum, just normal life. You know, everybody in this room, anybody, can be spiritual in a foxhole. Don't they say there are no atheists in a foxhole? When the bullets are flying and the bombs are exploding, it's very easy to trust God. But how do you do in the normal routine of just daily life. You remember the surge of spirituality on 9-11? The sale of Bibles skyrocketed and church attendance soared for a while. I was impressed as you were when Congress stood on the steps of the Capitol building and sang in unison, God bless America and then promptly retired inside to consider legislation to restrict religious freedom. Very interesting. But it's those mundane, long stretches of life, when the road is straight with not much scenery around our side, that we begin to kind of lose our edge, let down our guard, be lulled to sleep. You know, when you're driving in the beautiful Blue Ridge or Smoky Mountains, did I cover them there, Jerry, the Smoky Mountains? Yes, sir, buddy. When you're driving in those places with the hairpin curves and the marvelous vistas before you, it's easy to pay attention, isn't it? How do you do when you're driving across the straight lines of Kansas and Oklahoma and Nebraska? Then it becomes a little more challenging maybe to stay alert because you just begin to take it for granted. You know, the doctor or a health scare can really get your attention and cause you to straighten up for a while. And so you get on a diet and you get into an exercise regimen and then Krispy Kreme turns on the light. <laughs> and the barbecue, you start to smell it wafting by and your recliner says, you know I'm your best friend. And pretty soon, something begins to give. Have you watched after New Year's? People make New Year's resolutions, and you will, what is it now? October. So in a couple of months, you will, first of all, in a couple of months, you will misbehave over the holidays. And then, New Year's, you'll make a resolution. 24-hour fitness will be your best friend for 24 days. And Jenny Craig, you will be really tight with Jenny until Easter. And then we get back to the normal routine of life. Have you ever noticed anybody can be in love on a honeymoon? But then comes a couple of years later when you got curlers and robes and slippers and, you know, unshaven, a pot belly and dirty socks. And I haven't even talked about him yet. And you can just see. <laughs> sorry. And you can just see 
how the routine of real life has a way of just kind of sapping it from us. Real life, like bills and jobs and dirty dishes around the house. And how about this one? In-laws. That's just real. <laughs> when Brenda and I have, we have daughters-in-law. And when we go to visit them, I say, oh, I'll bet this just makes your day, doesn't it? Having your mother-in-law in your house with you for a while. <laughs> Deal with it. All right. Now, let me set up the passage. So we understand we're going to be dealing with the routine, ho-hum, mundane. In fact, let's all do this together. You ready? Let me see you do that. See if you're thinking with me. Some of you have already got that down to a science. You've been doing that starting on Sunday morning. All right, when I preach. Now, the gospel is taking root, but so is opposition. In other words, as this Christian thing is being planted, they're winning the world to Christ, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. They're taking what Jesus said seriously. It is taking root, but the opposition is immediately right alongside. Isn't that just like your garden? Weeds and seeds, they seem to always go together. Stephen has been martyred. The evangelist Philip is on a roll. Saul is converted on his way to Damascus. And now the greatest persecutor of the church has become its strongest proclaimer. God is at work. And so is the devil. Know that in your life, that when the Lord moves in your life, the enemy is mad about that. And when he starts to do good things in his family... Satan will be sure to kick up his heels as well. We've set the stage. Now let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, or niner, as they say in the aviation industry, I believe. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. Acts 9, 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem... He, Paul, was trying to associate with the disciples. In other words, with the, the leaders of the church, Peter and James and Bartholomew and those guys. He, Paul was trying to associate with them, and they were all afraid of him, not believing. Oh, I got the wrong, wrong, wait, 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 wait. 926 through 31. All right, we're there. I'm sorry. And not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him a soul. Wait a minute. I, this isn't looking right. Where do I want to? There's 31. I'm a highly trained professional. Trust me. I know these things. I was just doing this to see if you're paying attention. Okay, let's start in Genesis 1-1 and read our way until we find it. You want to talk about routine, wait until we get into Leviticus. All right, so let's see. Oh, okay, okay. All right, we're, we're in verse... 27, but Barnabas took hold of Paul and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked with him and how Damascus, on Damascus, he had spoken boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was, take, he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews and they were attempting to put Paul to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him away to Tarsus. Now I want you to hear verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued 
to increase. Particularly, let your eyes spend some time in verse 31. That is an obscure little verse of scripture that I'll confess to you. I've probably read 150 or 500 times. And when I'm reading that story, my eyes tended to just skip over verse 31 because it seemed like it was a connector, kind of just a filler as we move from one story to the next. But I want us today, the Bible says that all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. The word there means God breathed. And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, etc. So therefore, we're going to find out why that verse of Scripture is in the Bible, why the Holy Spirit wants you to hear it in your life, and exactly what the author was saying to us as he was inspired writing the Word of God. The way that this verse is constructed, verse 31, the, the Greek word there that they had peace is the main verb of that sentence. And if you understand the, that language that the Bible, is, the New Testament is originally written in, you've got a verb and it kind of is like the hub of the wheel. And then the spokes are participles. I don't need to bore you with all that stuff. Just simply to say that peace is the, the main thing going on. And the other activities are coming out of that peace. God's peace is producing, you'll see tonight, four different realities going on. So think of it as like the bucket or the pail, the peace. And in the midst of that peace, we see this fruit being born. Now let's go back and look at verse 31 again. And so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. I want to speak to you tonight upon the theme that you see on the screen, beyond being bored. Beyond being bored. I'm a grandpa. And it's a blast being a grandpa. Much more fun than being a dad. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. No responsibility. Spoiler in chief. Although it's very expensive. But none said, I like to spend time with my grandkids. And of course, each generation, they grow up. And then the next generation comes along, the youngins. And it's kind of fun. And they'll be hanging out with me. I had some of my grandkids just this past week before I came here. And the little ones, especially when they're with us, they'll say to me, they'll say, Poppy, I'm bored. And here's my response. Me too. <laughs> and, and a blank look comes on their face. It's panic of, no, not you. You can't be bored because you're the answer to us being bored. So let's get a handle on this. And I want us to think tonight about the human reality of being bored according to this verse of scripture and the reality of normal life we go through, and we're going to see in this passage how to utilize times of tranquility. Anybody can be an a, a spiritual in a foxhole. How to utilize times when it's just a normal, routine, mundane, kind of boring reality. Daily duty, as it were. When life is not a thrill a minute. And have you noticed that when that is occurring and things are not popping and sizzling, that you have a tendency to become busy, cozy, and lazy. You want the enemies of your spiritual vitality when you get busy, when you get cozy, and you get lazy. 
Last month, I had the privilege to address a group of seniors, senior citizens, at a luncheon. And we did a bunch of stuff, but as I shared a, a meditation with them, I talked to them about the realities of time. And I said, you know, we all have a limited amount of time. We had a picture of an hourglass up, and the truth of the matter is, for every one of us in this room, there's only so much sand in that hourglass. Try as we may, you can't put more in there. And I said, when it comes to the reality of time, everybody spends time. You have no choice but to spend your time. Now, you may try to save time, you may lose time, but in the end, you will spend. Correct? With me so far? Now, when it comes to how you spend time, you again have three choices. You can spend your time wasting time, killing time, or redeeming time. That is your choice. We're going to talk about when you're being bored, when it's the routine and the mundane, how we can redeem the time and utilize times of tranquility from the scriptures as they did. The first that we can see is that they, had, they were being built up, the scripture says in verse 31. There was upward progress. Now the word there that talks about being built up is a word that means from a building, an edifice, to edify. means like you would build a house. Have you ever noticed that an, a vacant house, an unoccupied house, will deteriorate? It's inescapable. You see a house that's been vacant for a few months, a few years, and you can tell it immediately. I don't understand how that happens. I understand something about entropy and all those things, but how does that happen in a nice home, but it does. The next question then is, well, how do we build, get ourselves built up? Well, I'll tell you how you do that. You do that the same way that they did at the very beginning that I preached Sunday morning from that pulpit there. In Acts chapter 2, I read the verse that said that they were de continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and they were meeting one another's needs. Those four Things are the key to how you grow in your spiritual life, how you are built up. Prayer, the word, fellowship, and service. When you share the gospel with someone, if they give their heart here or at the workplace or at the restaurant or whatever, and you're following up with a new believer, you tell them as you now walk out of this place as a child of God, put your energies into four things. Prayer and the word, fellowship, with other believers and service. The Navigators is a, is a discipleship ministry and they have an illustration called the wheel. That illustration is over 70 years of age. I hope you've seen it. I teach it around the world sometimes and it's certainly not new. But it talks about an obedient Christian. It's in visual form. Christ is the hub. The vertical is prayer and the word. That's how I connect to God. The horizontal is fellowship and service. That's how we connect with one another. You do those four things and that's how you will grow. And you can particularly do that in the seasons when it is peaceful. That's the way you're going to grow. Now notice in the New Testament there are eight verses that tell us to build up or edify one another. I have an application question for you now. Can you tell me as you inventory your own heart how have you grown? How have you been built up? 
How have you improved since the last time I was here three years ago? How are you better? I think that's a critical question. If you cannot point to something in your walk with God that has improved in three years, you may want to think about, am I wasting time? And am I wasting my life? The second truth that we can see about utilizing times of tranquility was forward progress. Notice what it says in this verse. We're staying in verse 31. That they are going on in the fear of the Lord. Now the word there, to go on, is a word that means to travel, to progress forward. Think about that for a moment. In the vernacular of the day, they would have said to, they were walking on. Do you know why you see the term walk so much in the Bible? Think about this. What was the chief mode of transportation at that time? Walking. Now, if it was today, we might say, well, drive on in the, for the glory of God or in other parts of the world. Ride that train or take that. I've been in parts of the world where the chief means of transportation is boat travel. But in biblical times and in that world, walking was fundamental to everyday life. Wherever they went, they walked. And have you noticed something about walking? In other parts of the world, I am struck by the fact that when you're out between cities, even villages, you still will see a large number of people walking along the pathway or the road if we're driving through. When I bring people from foreign countries to my country, they often remark, how come nobody in America walks? They notice the difference. Now think about walking for a moment. When you are a walker, in fact, I've always been intrigued by the walking races that they have in the Olympics and so forth. Think about being a, a walking racer, Olympic weight, on the Olympic team to win a walking race. The premise is I got to go as fast as I can without going as fast as I can. That must be tough. Maybe that's why they have those strange postures and so forth. But when you're walking, to be a good walker is not about speed, but about pace. One of my friends at home years ago was Filipino. And the Filipino people, Jerry knows this well, the Filipino people in Hawaii, there's a large ethnic group of Filipinos, they are hard workers, amazingly hard workers. They have tough jobs, and they do them faithfully. So Rodney Pasqua was raised on a sugarcane plantation on the island of Kauai. And I, I was with Rodney one day, and, and I said, Rodney, here's these Filipinos working. And I said, you're Filipino. How do you explain that Filipinos work so hard? He said, watch them. I said, why? He said, watch them. You won't see them work fast. You'll see them work steady. They get a pace, and they keep it going all day long, every day. Forward movement. I fly a lot in airplanes. I will be doing it again on Wednesday morning and etc. And I've noticed something about flying. As long as the plane is going forward, we're having a good flight. <laughs> but if at any time we cease to go forward, we're going downward. And that's probably not going to end well. You've got to have that forward movement. Faith. 
is your daily walk in the daily grind. What good is it to have a faith that requires one mountaintop experience followed by another mountaintop experience followed by another mountaintop experience? You and I both know that you cannot breathe on the mountaintop because the air is too thin. It has to be a rare experience for us to have. So how do we keep that forward movement going? I want you to think with me about a man out of history that has impacted me in my thinking. His name is Ernest Shackleton, 1915. Explorer from Ireland, England. And then he went to Antarctica to explore the South Pole. And his ship, the good ship Endurance, got stuck in an ice pack. I'll cut to the chase. They had to survive in Antarctica. He and a crew of 28 men had to survive in those brutal conditions. As the ice began to shift and move, their ship was going to be crushed. So they had to relocate, survive on walrus fat, and deal with the, the horrible elements. They realized we're not going to make it. So a small group had to sail on a dangerous boat to South Georgia Island, trek across the island, across the glaciers, the snow, the wind, the horrible conditions, get to a whaling village, and ultimately get back to the men. Here's the story. 497 days later, all 28 men survived. But when they asked Shackleton about that, he just said, we just had to put one foot in front of the other. William Carey, that name may ring a bell with you, he is called the father of modern missions. When the Christian world had basically lost touch with the Great Commission and really didn't care whether people in other parts of the world and other cultures and other languages knew about Jesus or not because they said, well, we do. We like it. Kerry began to understand that God was calling him to go to India. And he became known as the father of modern missions. Now, by trade, William Carey was a shoe cobbler. We are told that he was not a man of impressive stature, that he had no real academic exploits or credentials. He was just a common guy who gave Jesus his best. And Carey is renowned as the father of modern missions, and one quote from him has stood out time eternal. You've probably heard it in this church. Carey said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Impressive. But I think he said something that is even more profound than that. When William Carey spoke about his own life, his lack of profile, his lack of qualifications... His lack of charisma, speaking about himself as a man who used to make shoes, he said this autobiographical statement as what he offered the Lord, I can plod. You get the point? I can plod. I can give God this step and this step and this step and another one to follow after that. He understood what it was to glorify God every day in every way. Now, here is the secret for your life and mine. How do you keep going in the tough conditions of the daily grind? Notice what the passage says. We want to be true to it. It says they're going on in the fear of the Lord. There's that word, phobos. In peace and tranquility, they still had this sense of holy awareness of a, of a Terror before their God. They took him seriously. 
keeping ourselves connected to our God in a personal and spiritual and transformative way and fanning that flame and saying, I want to stay white hot for Jesus, that brings meaning to the mundane. It is a faith that values spiritual things more than religious things that says it's about loving Jesus and him loving me. Notice that the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is there, and it is not there by accident. I'll tell you something. A healthy fear of God, when you're talking about staying on track, a healthy fear of God will keep you on the straight and narrow. And to the young people that are in this room tonight, keep that one in mind. That when you're tempted and called and urged to go down the side path, there's nothing wrong with developing a healthy fear of the Lord. They had forward progress. Third, to utilize times of tranquility is inward progress. Here the phrase is from that verse, the comfort, they were going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now the word used for that is the word paraclete, meaning one who's called in alongside of. It is a word play that Jesus used in John 14, 15, and 16 when he taught about the Holy Spirit and did not use the term necessarily the Holy Spirit. He called him the paraclete, the helper, the comforter, someone who comes in alongside of you and assists. In the old days, we used to talk about the helper a lot, literally one who walks with you. Now, notice the intriguing contrast in this verse. You have, on the one hand, the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This seems contradictory, doesn't it? The fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. One is a kick in the pants. The other is a pat on the back. And sometimes, you know, the Bible says in Hosea, I think it is. Man, I preached on that when I was a young man with hair. And, I, and it says in Hosea, I think it is, with one hand God has afflicted us and with one hand he has healed us. And I remember in that sermon saying to folks, let God have both his hands. So we have a healthy fear of God where we take him serious and understand he doesn't put up with nonsense and we're, we're accountable. And on the other hand, he is here to comfort and heal and assure. I don't know about you, but I need both of those to stay on track, to stay going forward. And maybe you do too. So tonight, if you find yourself lonely, inadequate, tearful, and fearful, the Holy Spirit is just who you need. Because he is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And he knows how to come in alongside of, and according to Romans 8.26, intercede for us in groanings too deep for words. We have a prayer partner. We have an ally who says, I'm on your team. And where you struggle, I will give you the strength. You and every one of us in this room cannot live the Christian life in our own strength. It is impossible. The New Testament makes that crystal clear. Based upon the Old Testament showing that you will fail in the flesh. But what the flesh could not do, God has done by giving us his Holy Spirit. Read Romans. 
Read Galatians. Read Colossians. I love the old hymn, The Comforter Has Come. The Comforter Has Come. The Father's gift from heaven, the Holy Ghost has come. Oh, spread the tidings round. Wherever man is found, the Comforter has come. And every one of us in this room, now and then, needs a there, there. And the Holy Spirit is the one to do that, to minister to you in a deep and intimate way. The fourth truth that we learn, to utilize a time of tranquility is outward progress. The last words of verse 31, which is again, you've got the narrative of the church winning the world to Christ, dealing with persecution, doing great miracles, and tucked in there is this little verse, and the church enjoyed a time of peace. And they were being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, what does it say? And then it says, they con the church continued to increase at the end of verse 31. It continued to increase. This is expansion. This is evangelism. Understand that church growth is God's plan and should be our passion. If a church is not growing, then it becomes ingrown. A church with no outward focus will become self-centered and spiritual navel-gazers. God's intent was never to call his people to themselves for themselves. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, this is personally and corporately, if you seek to save your life, you will lose your life. But if you lose your life, you, for my sake, you will find it. Let me tell you a short story out of the, the real trenches of life. The year was 1991. Hurricane Iniki, actually Hurricane Andrew, had just worked over Florida pretty well. One stronger than Andrew set its sights directly on the island of Kauai in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it came our direction. And the eye passed literally straight over the island of Kauai. There was no evacuation because there was nowhere to go. We had to hunker down and endure it. And after, our, after that storm passed, our island, Category 5, was absolutely devastated. Now, at the time, I pastored the Waioli Hui'ia Church, and your pastor came and visited us sometime thereafter as he was on our island helping with uh, relief work. And I remember the day Jerry came to my office and I was so pooped and frazzled and busy I didn't have a whole lot of good humor in me to engage in that conversation but we were trying to get her done. That said, with our island devastated and many people in my church and in the community had lost everything. One man rode out the hurricane in my house at the church. After the storm passed it was 8 o'clock at night and we drove through the debris over to where his home used to be. When we got there, his house was gone. We could see remnants of his belongings hanging in the trees, but his house, no wall standing, no roof, no anything, gone. Within a matter of weeks, when the postal service got up and we were clearing debris and dealing with things, 
people would come by in the immediate aftermath of the storm and you would see them and you would ask two questions. You would ask, are you all right? Secondly, do you have a place to stay? I remember two people stayed in my home on night number two. I don't know who they were to this day. You didn't ask because it was a hideous situation. You don't have a place to stay here. I got a, I got a dry room. You can stay in there. But what happened as the weeks went by, the postal service started to run again, and the church that I pastored is renowned for its physical location and its quaint history and the choir and all of those kinds of things. And the pastor at the time was famous. And okay, the truth of the matter is I had a basset hound, which Jerry knows. He was legendary and everybody loved him. But as a result, tourists would worship in our church from all over the country and all over the world every Sunday. And each day as I would go to the post office to get just the regular mail, there would be a check in the mail. And check after check, day after day kept coming in. And ultimately, unsolicited, we had accrued $40,000 in a matter of just a few weeks. $40,000 coming to our church. We were yet to settle with the insurance company. We didn't even know if we could settle with the insurance company. And so now we find ourselves as a church with an extra 40000 which would be about 50000 in today's dollars, let's guess. So we've got that chunk of cash sitting in our hands. And I met with the leaders of the church, and we said, okay, we've got a couple of options here. We can sit on this and wait on our insurance settlement. Or we can do something in the name of Jesus for hurting people right here, right now. And so we found people within our church who had lost everything or who needed to get a tarp over what walls they had standing so they could stay dry. We found people in the community who had never come to our church, but they were struggling and they didn't have any place to be or whatever. And so I'm here to tell you that we systematically gave away all $40,000 to church people and non-church people. And when you put the man hours alongside of it that our men donated, we gave far more than $40,000. And that was one of the most precious times that I was proudest of that group of believers. It's about having, an, and by the way, let me finish the rest of the story. When the insurance settlement ultimately came, the insurance settlement we received was so generous, we upgraded our facilities from what we had before. God was not outdone. Outward progress, a vision and a heart for this county, this community, this country, our world. How has your church grown in the last three years since last I was here? If you can't answer that question, then answer this question. Why not? Let's go back and read Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now I need you to, let's do a worship 
rubric here where you respond to the reading of God's word. Some churches say, and this ends the reading of thus is God's word. You could say that. But I want you to say this. I'll read this passage again, and then you do what I tell you to do. Trust me. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Ready? Are you bored? They were. No, I'm serious. The thrills, the chills, the spills aren't happening. But notice what they did or what they did not do. During that time of tranquility and mundane, ho-hum routine, boredom, they did not just sit, soak, and savor. They took the peace and quiet and they used it. They used it for upward progress, forward progress, inward progress, and outward progress. You are going to go through, you may be right now going through the routine, the mundane, the daily ho-hum. Some of you may go to a job every day and you say, I've been doing this so long, I'm sick of it. You may be caring for an invalid elder and the daily tasks are not sexy and they're not exciting. You may be tired of dirty dishes or dirty diapers, but the Lord can use those kinds of time. If our faith doesn't work in that, then when does it work? You have a choice. You are going to have to spend that time somewhere. You can waste it. You can kill it, or you can redeem it. I'll tell you a short story, and then I'll close. My son, when he was a little boy, would be, he would hear me preach all the time, Sunday after Sunday, and he was four, five, six, seven, whatever he was, and I would ask him as we would walk across from where the church was to where we lived, I'd put my arm around him, and I'd say, Son, how was today's sermon? And he always had a one-word answer, boring. The other day, as a 37-year-old executive with American Airlines, he flies all the time. He was back home, and it happened to be a Sunday where I was preaching in the local church I attend when I'm home, which doesn't happen very much. And so he was there that Sunday as I was preaching, 37-year-old, high-powered business executive. So after the service was over, I walk up to him, and I said, son... How was the sermon? He just looked at me and went, boring. <laughs> hey, that's real life, folks, isn't it? So tell me, how was my sermon tonight? Oh, don't you lie. <laughs> if, if you found this sermon boring, give me a good, <sighs> don't lie. I need, I need just one good, Come on. Ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, the gospel works in the real trenches of life. We have seen your people having some serious fun 
in the amazing mountaintop of Pentecost, and they kept feeling a sense of awe. We saw them deal with tremendous turmoil with Ananias and Sapphira, and they were seriously having fun. Now tonight, we have been reminded that your word chooses to show God's people in the midst of daily routine. And I thank you that our faith can work in the trenches of life, that you are with us always, even when it seems boring. May we not waste the time you have given us. May we not kill the time, but may we walk with you and let you redeem the time. In Jesus' name, amen.